0: When Representative Ruben Gallego announced he was running for Senate, he made clear that it's in part because of what he views as the misguided priorities of Senator Kirsten Cinema. She has long made clear that she views raw partisan politics as a policy dead end.
1: I've decided to leave
2: that partisan process and really just focus on the work that I think matters to Arizona and to our country, which is solving problems and getting things done. Arizonans sent me to the United States Senate to be an independent voice for our state, and I'll continue doing that.
3: I'm running as an Arizonan. I'm running as someone that cares about, you know, the people of Arizona and the people that really have been left behind, the people that, uh, you know, feel like nobody's fighting for them. And I think at the end of the day, that's the thing that people will want to be attracted to. That's what people want to vote for. I don't think they want the chumminess that happens between the lobbyist class, the Wall Street class and our senators. That's not, you know, what you're supposed to do uh, in representative government.
1: But the bad vibes between them aren't really new. It's part of a split that began 17 years ago, and it's only widened in recent years.
0: Welcome to The Gaggle, the Arizona Republic's political podcast. Each week, we take a closer look at the stories and issues that affect Arizona, with politicians, experts, and reporters helping us make sense of it all. I'm Ron Hansen, the national politics reporter for the Arizona Republic.
1: And I'm Mary Jo Pitzel, state political reporter at the Republic. Today we're taking a closer look at the history between Senator Cinema and Representative Gallego and how their differing styles and strategies continue to influence their policy views today.
0: Joining us are two special guests to talk about Cinema and Gallego at different times in their careers. We'll start with Steve May, a former Republican state lawmaker who co chaired with Cinema the effort to defeat a 2006 constitutional ban on same sex marriage? It was known as Proposition 107.
1: Steve, long before Ruben Gallego entered the 2024 Senate race, maybe pitting him against Kirsten Cinema, those two worked together on Proposition 107. That was a measure that sought to ban gay marriage, and they formed a committee to defeat it. The committee hired Gallego, who was working through a consulting firm, to be the campaign manager under you and Cinema for much of the campaign. Although a ban on gay marriage was already in state law, conservatives wanted to put this in the state constitution. They thought it would be a winner for voters and would help GOP nominee for governor Len Munsell defeat incumbent Democratic governor Janet Napolitano. This episode in history strikes me as a window into the clashing political styles of cinema and gallego. So, Steve, could you walk us through how you came to work with cinema and the role that Ruben Gallego played in that campaign?
3: Wow, there's a lot a lot in that question to, to get to, Mary Jo, and I like how you say that clashing political styles, clashing personality styles as well between Kirsten and Ruben. Proud of that campaign, we launched a number of folks into much bigger careers than where they started with, including, of course, Kirsten and Ruben. And there were others who went on from, you know, being volunteers in the campaign to going to the Arizona legislature. We have a lot of folks who were on staff in various places. That campaign really pushed a lot of people forward or elevated a lot of people, I guess is the word. So I'll just digest the difference between, you know, Rubin and Kirsten, both of whom I love and admire and respect. I think they're doing a wonderful job in their respective positions. Ruben likes to fight. Kirsten likes to win. And those are very different leadership styles and personality styles. And we certainly saw that in the Prop 107 campaign. When I started that campaign in November of 2004, our side of the issue had already lost 20 elections, 20 statewide elections across the country. And I knew it was coming to Arizona. I organized a community town hall in November of About 70 or 80 people showed up. And I said, folks, we got to figure out how to win. Arizona is a place where we can experiment and we need to see if we can actually win. And that was a novel concept in 2004. No one thought we could ever win on the marriage issue. The grand poobahs of the gay movement said, oh, no, we just got to talk to people and use this as an opportunity to talk. We did a poll early on, maybe it's November, maybe it's December of before that 23% of the voters, Arizona voters, supported our side of the issue. Now, you know, when you go into an initiative campaign, you want to be at 60% support so that you end up at 51. And we had 23. So we had an impossible task. Kirsten was at that meeting. She had just been elected for the first time to the state legislature. And a couple months later, I asked her if she would come in and and be my co-chair and serve as the actual, the legal chair, but functionally as the co-chair for that campaign. And I said, we have to figure out how to win. So that was about a year and a half of Kirsten and I running around the state of Arizona doing several things. One is doing research to figure out how could we possibly win? We spent a quarter million dollars on just trying to understand voters and their mentality. And we did focus groups and polling and psychometric surveys and everything you could imagine. And what we learned is for most voters, they believed certain things like the sun rises in the east, it sets in the west, the sky is blue, and marriage is between one man and one woman. That's just where they were. But we also learned that if we could have a 90-minute conversation with them, we could convince like 80% of them to support marriage equality. So we knew that there was a path. If we could talk to people, we could win. And so we took votes in city after city after city across the state. Here's the situation. Do you want to win or do you want to just talk about being gay? Because that was a legitimate approach. Some people said, no, we just want to talk about ourselves to the community and then they'll, they'll love us and we'll, and we'll, move the needle or in the parlance of the, some of the national gay leaders, they said, lose forward. Kirsten and I agree, like losing forward, that, that sounds nutty. Like we're going to, we're going to win forward, not lose forward. So for a year and a half, Kirsten and I did that. Ruben then came in as a campaign manager that came in through our consulting firm. And like the final six months of the campaign. And Ruben, super guy, super smart, hardworking with a lot of a great skill set, even then 20 years ago. But he got caught up in the part of fighting at the expense of winning. And he got kind of pulled into the faction of our coalition that was breaking away from us toward the end, where they felt like we should put gay people on billboards and show the world what a gay family looks like as opposed to communicating in a way that we knew would move voters to vote a certain way, to vote no on Prop 107. And so he became the voice for what had become a radical fringe element of our coalition. And so he became unmanageable. And Kirsten called me and we had a conversation. She said, I said, got, we gotta fire him. This is 2006, right? Toward the, uh, maybe two months before the election, I think. I said, let's do it. So we moved him out of the position he was in, Because he he wanted to fight, and Kirsten and I wanted to win. And we had made a commitment to our community to run a campaign that would win, and we did.
1: After the campaign fired Gallego, what did that do, from what you observed, of relations between himself and cinema, especially because your campaign was successful and you defeated Prop 107?
3: Well, I, I think that that defeat of Prop 107 really helped Kirsten gain a lot of credibility amongst her peers and in the public. Uh, it introduced her to a broad network. It helped people take her seriously. Here was this freshman legislator, freshman minority, I mean, from a Democrat minority legislator that normally could be simply or easily ignored. But having this win behind her required people to take her more seriously, I think, than they otherwise would have. Reuben was definitely part of that campaign. Reuben has probably never been invited to a fight he didn't accept the invitation to. I mean, he loves fighting. He loves it. Like, you pick a fight, he'll be there. Kirsten is a warrior, which means she knows how to refrain. She picks and chooses the battles based on where she's trying to go. Ruben's tactical and Kirsten's strategic. I'm not saying one's better than the other. They're just different. And I think there's a lot of people, including the faction that we lost control of in that campaign in Prop 107, there are a lot of people who want a Ruben-style leader. They want someone to be their voice and be their voice all the time. They just speak up and to fight and to fight. Even if it means you lose, it doesn't matter to fight. Kirsten, I think, learned through Prop 107 that there is a way to win. Like, there's a way to win if you talk to people and listen to them and maybe compromise and say, What do you really want to accomplish here? What are you trying to do? What am I trying to do? Can we work something out? And I think Kirsten's political work has been how do you get to yes? How do you bring a coalition together and get to yes?
1: Do you see those character traits carrying through to today? And if so, how do you anticipate they might end, uh, influence a campaign?
3: I don't know what the campaign's going to be. Like, is Kirsten running again? Uh, we don't know that. Rubin says he's running. He's starting that campaign. But it's also a little odd. R- Rubin could probably keep that congressional seat for the next 30 years if he wanted to. And um, I think Rubin's got an important voice and plays an important role in our state and in our nation. Proud of everything that he's accomplished. I don't agree. I mean... He and I would have very different voting records if we if we compared our our those interests. Uh, but man, what a, what an important voice for our state and for our nation. But Kirsten, you know, one of the things I think she learned in the Prop 107 Seven campaign is to not to speak, right? When not to speak. And sometimes I wonder if she's taken that too far in the last couple of years, because a lot of people, including me, I haven't spoken to her in several years. But a lot of her her friends and allies would like to know, what are we supposed to say when we get these questions from people? Like, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? What is the end goal here? You know, I believe Kirsten is brilliant and intentional and mindful, and she's doing exactly what she wants to do to achieve whatever end goal she wants. But I don't know what the end goal is. And I think that's true for a lot of people. Whereas is much more obvious because he certainly communicates frequently, if not always clearly. He talks a lot. So we kind of know what he's, what he's thinking. So I don't know what we're going to see. Is there really going to be a campaign between the two of them? I'd I'd be kind of surprised.
0: Very good. Well, Steve May, thank you for joining us today. If people want to follow you on social media, where can they find you?
3: I'm not very present on social media, but on Twitter, I'm book of Steve.
0: Now we turn to our next guest, Professor Bruce Oppenheimer, who is a political scientist at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. His expertise is centered on Congress and American political institutions. Currently, he's been researching how process changes have affected the ability of Congress to develop energy policy over the past half century. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Ron. Good to be with you. So you keep an eye on Congress and how the various members sort themselves out ideologically and such. Ruben Gallego has been in the House since the 2014 elections. Kirsten Cinema went to the House after the 2012 elections and has been in the Senate since 2018. What stands out to you about both of them?
2: Well, I think Gallego is an interesting case because he does have, for a Democrat of his generation... He does have military service as part of his uh, resume, and I think that makes him maybe not totally your typical sort of liberal Democrat, but he still probably is a reliable national Democratic vote on almost all issues. Cinema is an unusual personality, both individually and both when she was a House member and a senator, and probably not somebody if you looked at her on paper initially, you would have thought this is somebody who could win elective office in Arizona, yet she has surprised people all along the way, winning a House seat and then being elected to the Senate. And during that time has probably, to many, become a less reliable vote for the Democrats, both in the House and the Senate. In part, one could argue that she was tailoring that to a a house district, which was not totally safe and was more, uh, politically, uh, heterogeneous and then to represent a state, which, you know, maybe Arizona is now a purple state, if you want to look at it that way, but has reached a point where, um, I think Democrats in Washington and around the nation, have said she should be able to get reelected and stick with the party more and be more supportive. And maybe she's be holding to more conservative interests, business interests in the state. So, um, this has lowered her support score among Democrats and her most recent move to, although she still organizes with the Democrats to say she is now an independent. One assumes she'll run for reelection as an independent, assuming she does. Has led, uh, Ruben Gallego as a house member with some visibility in the state To announce that he's going to run for the Democratic nomination.
1: So you pretty much cast them as Gallego leaning pretty heavily towards the liberal end and Sinema as a more, probably the most conservative Democrat in Washington currently. Can you point to some specifics that where these two distinguish themselves in that liberal and conservative mode?
2: Well, I think it's, you can see it sort of across the board. That is, are you someone who, The leadership in your chamber can rely on, on most issues. And are you someone who is in line generally with what the president's program is, or are you someone who is never a certain vote? And I think that's really where the crux of the matter is. Both chambers have had for a number of years, very narrow majorities for one party or another. And it makes people who are on the moderate ends of those parties in a position where they can um, threaten not to go along. With the Republicans, it's strange. The threat not to go along isn't just from the more moderates. It's from, in the Republican Party, the extreme conservatives and from the, the Democratic Party, from extreme liberals. So I think Gallego is viewed as a mainstream national Democrat who obviously has some issues which are specific to Arizona, which he may not stay with the leadership on anything, but it's not something where every time when Pelosi was Speaker and the Democrats had the majority, every time he brought something to the floor, he was not one of the votes you had to worry about. Whereas Cinema increasingly has become, uh, to Chuck Schumer, uh, the uh, majority leader in the Senate, someone you had to bargain with. and. Cinema got a a lot of visibility on a range of issues from the, you know, post-COVID support programs to the infrastructure bill, if not a thorn in the side of the administration and leadership, somebody that you were never certain whose support you had when you weren't going to get any support from the Republican side on a number of issues. So that lack of reliability, what gets reflected in her decision to become an independent. At the start of this Congress.
0: She strikes me as something of an enigma almost. She can legitimately claim to have played a central role in shaping some of the most consequential matters that played out in the last Congress from passage of a far-reaching infrastructure law to a surprising bipartisan law, adding more scrutiny to the purchase of firearms by young people. But at the same time, she's plummeted in the eyes of a lot of Democrats. Largely, it seems, Stemming from her support for the legislative filibuster, which prevented initiatives like voting rights protections and any steps on protecting abortion rights from passing on narrow party lines. How unusual is it for someone to lose support like this, this precipitously?
2: Well, I don't know how precipitously it's really been. I think you're pushing while trying to attract one constituency. To help your reelection, and perhaps because she feels she has changed her positions over time, you gradually alienate another part of your constituency. And that's always a balancing act in a state that has become increasingly diverse, as Arizona is, and especially in the composition of the vote support in the Democratic Party in Arizona, which isn't. Fully a liberal voting bloc, but contains some moderates and some people who are independents or now more moderate Republicans who are um, not happy with what's happening within their party.
1: Gallego, as he announces his run, is touting priorities like cutting prescription drug prices and voting for the Inflation Reduction Act, which included the biggest climate change mitigation efforts in national history. But these are things that cinema helped to bring about in the Senate with her votes. So where do you find the difference between these two candidates?
2: Well, I think it's the fact that things had to be modified to pick up her vote in the Senate. It was not like she was going along with the size of the packages, their breadth. There are things that the Democrats could not pass in the bills because of bargains which had to be made to capture her vote when they could get it. And there are key issues where, you know, she has made it very clear that she has a particular interpretation of when it's appropriate to limit cloture and when it's not appropriate to limit the cloture rule, which is increasingly becoming a hot button issue for Democrats, especially on key issues like voting rights.
0: You're getting at the filibuster and and how that rankles many Democrats and has for a few years now, but it strikes me that as we look at the 2024 Senate map and the difficult races that are ahead for Democrats, if they lose the Senate, as many people think is more than possible at this point- Will Democrats be so eager to dispense with the filibuster? How does that factor into this kind of race moving forward?
2: That's always problematic, which is if you make a change, what's good for you in the short term may not be good for you in the long term. The Democrats would obviously try to limit it to things like voting rights and make a case that there are exceptions that can be made, but they have the experience of 2013 When they removed, effectively removed, cloture as needed to confirm federal judges. And then the Republicans, when they got control of the Senate, extended it to Supreme Court justices, which were not originally included in that interpretation. And made it very easy, relatively easy for the Republicans to, during the Trump administration, To confirm a lot of judges and, quite obviously, some controversial Supreme Court nominees who might have been stopped if cloture still applied, but the Democrats might have been able to hold up. So, you know, there is always what do you want to do for short term gain? What do you want to do for long term gain? So I think this is a tension. And then Cinema deciding to become an independent sort of says opens things up for. Gallego to say, well, I don't have to challenge her in a democratic primary, which I guess increasingly looked like a tough sledding for cinema to have won a democratic primary, but he doesn't even have to justify now running against the democratic incumbent because she is now an independent incumbent. And, um, you know, he can, he can start that campaign and we haven't gotten there yet when you have a three-way Senate race. Predicting the outcome is a little dicey.
0: Well, that was my final question for you. I wanted to ask you about these dicey matters of a three way Senate race. Is there any analog you can think of from recent history or any history that compares to the possibility of what we might have on offer here in Arizona next year?
2: Uh, Not quite. I mean, we do have cases where there have been independent candidates and three candidates running. We had it when Joe Lieberman lost his primary in Connecticut and uh, to Ned Lamont, but the Republican became a non factor. But the, Connecticut is a more Democratic state. You've clearly seen that both in Maine and Vermont, where you have independent organizers with the Democrats and Bernie Sanders throughout his career. But the, the Democrats have not put up viable candidates to compete in that. So there might be somebody who was a Democratic candidate on the ballot, but in Campbell in, in Maine, a state which has had a history of electing independence, he had been a governor and Bernie Sanders have been able to survive that without any real opposition from Democrats. To go back, and I hate to go back this far, to I think 1970 in New York, where after the assassination of Bobby Kennedy the Republican governor, Nelson Rockefeller, appointed Charles Goodell, father of the NFL commissioner, in case you wonder, uh, to a sentencing. Goodell had been a house member from a Western New York in a very conservative district and had a conservative voting record. When he became a U.S. Senator, he realized to get reelected, he would modify his position, different constituency. And William F Buckley Jr.'s brother, James Buckley, ran on the conservative party line and Richard Richard Ottinger as a Democrat. And they all got over 30% and Buckley, the conservative narrowly won that race, defeating both uh, Ottinger and, and Goodell finished third, incidentally. So that's the one where you had a very competitive race in a state, New York, which was not as assuredly a democratic state then as it is now. But these things are really almost idiosyncratic. So one of the things we don't know about, we don't know who the Republican nominee is going to be. And that can have a big effect on the outcome. And you don't expect if this looks like a major opening for Republicans, then I expect a good number of candidates will get in to the Republican primary will be more attractive to run. And when you have a large number of candidates in a first past the post primary, plurality winner, you don't know who's going to win. And the candidate who wins in that sort of primary may or may not be a good general election candidate. So while we're all focused on Gallego and cinema and the problems this creates for the Democrats, we don't have the third piece of the puzzle yet. And in fact, we don't even know that Gallego will be the sole one running in the Democratic primary, although that seems likely. So if you could tell me who the Republican candidate was going to be, I might say, oh, you know, that's somebody who will attract independents, will be able to hold moderate Republicans, they will not go to cinema or make a close three-way race. And the Republican has a good chance of, of winning easily.
0: I think that's the big, big question right now. It is among many questions in this race. Well, Bruce, we appreciate you taking the time to go through all this with us. Thanks so much for your time. If people want to follow your work, where can they find you on social media or elsewhere?
2: Well, I don't do a lot of social media. If you're having trouble sleeping, you can read some of my books and articles. I recommend them strongly for insomnia. So, um, You know, I've written on Congress and uh, congressional elections pretty extensively, but they're not on the
0: New York Times bestseller list. Well, thanks so much for your time, Bruce. We really appreciate it. You're gonna have some great fun for the next two years. (laughs) That is it for today, Gaggle listeners. Do you have questions about Arizona's political landscape? Send them our way. You can leave us a voicemail at 602-444-0804 or email us at thegaggle at arizonarepublic.com. That's one word, all spelled out. And since we're a podcast, we'd love to hear your questions. Your message just might make it into one of our future episodes.
1: And be sure to rate and review our show and share it with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at Mary J. Pitzel. That's P-I-T-Z-L.
0: And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N.
1: Today's episode was edited and produced by Kaylee Monahan. You can find her at Kaylee Monahan. That's K-A-E-L-Y Monahan. Thanks for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com.